Welcome, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and another fascinating trip into history. Many of you have seen the 1997 film Titanic by James Cameron, and some of you have even seen the 1958 film A Night to Remember, based upon the book of the same name, written by Walter Lord. The sinking of the Titanic was an unmitigated disaster. Hundreds of survivors gave testimony in court and stories to the newspapers and magazines. And a few of those survivors wrote books about it. Thanks to the efforts of the people who support and operate Project Gutenberg, Lawrence Beasley's story survives for students of history, and his is considered one of the best and the most often quoted by researchers. The story of that fateful night is gripping and contains enough human drama packed into a few hours to fill volumes. Beasley's eyewitness story is a personal account of courage, love, forgiveness, cowardice, greed, bravery, hope, and grief that will remind you forever of the strength of the human spirit in the face of disaster. Here are a few facts to refamiliarize you with the story before we get started. The RMS Titanic was a British passenger liner that sank in the North Atlantic Ocean in 1912 after colliding with an iceberg during her maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City. Of the estimated 2,224 passengers and crew aboard, more than 1,500 died. She was the second of three Olympic-class ocean liners operated by the White Star Line. Although the Titanic had advanced safety features such as watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors, it only carried enough lifeboats for 1,178 people, about half the number on board, and one-third of her total capacity, due to outdated maritime safety regulations. The ship carried 16 lifeboat davits, which could lower three lifeboats each, for a total of 48 boats. However, Titanic carried only a total of 20 lifeboats, four of which were collapsible and proved hard to launch during the sinking. After leaving Southampton on April 10, 1912, the Titanic called at Cherbourg in France and Queenstown in Ireland before heading west to New York. On April 14, four days into the crossing and about 375 miles south of Newfoundland, she hit an iceberg at 11.40 p.m. ship's time. The collision caused the hull plates to buckle inwards along her starboard side and opened five of her 16 watertight compartments to the sea. She could only survive having four flooding. Meanwhile, passengers and some crew members were evacuated in lifeboats, many of which were launched only partially loaded. A disproportionate number of men were left aboard because of a women and children first protocol for loading lifeboats. And some men were shot trying to get aboard them. At 2.20 a.m., she broke apart and floundered with well over 1,000 people still aboard. Just under two hours after Titanic sank, the Cunard liner RMS Carpathia arrived and brought aboard an estimated 705 survivors. The disaster was met with worldwide shock and outrage at the huge loss of life and the regulatory and operational failures that led to it. Public inquiries in Britain and the United States led to major improvements in maritime safety. One of their most important legacies was the establishment in 1914 of the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, called SOLAS, S-O-L-A-S, which still governs maritime safety. Additionally, several new wireless regulations were passed around the world in an effort to learn from the many missteps in wireless communications, 
which could have saved many more passengers. The wreck of the Titanic was discovered in 1985, more than 70 years after the disaster, during a U.S. military mission, and it remains on the seabed. The ship was split in two and is gradually disintegrating at a depth of 12,415 feet. That's almost four miles. Thousands of artifacts have been recovered and displayed at museums around the world. Titanic has become one of the most famous ships in history. Her memory is kept alive by numerous works of popular culture, including books, folk songs, films, exhibits, and memorials. Titanic is the second largest ocean liner wreck in the world, only beaten by her sister, HMHS Britannic, the largest ever sunk. Although the Titanic holds the record as the largest sunk while actually in service as a liner, due to the Britannic being used as a hospital ship at the time of her sinking. The final survivor of the sinking, Melvina Dean, aged two months at the time of the Titanic sinking, died in 2009 at the age of 97. You are about to set sail on the practically unsinkable Titanic. And now, the loss of the SS Titanic, its story and its lessons, by survivor Lawrence Beasley. Chapter 1. Construction and Preparations for the First Voyage The history of the RMS Titanic of the White Star Line is one of the most tragically short it is possible to conceive. The world had waited expectantly for its launching, and again for its sailing, had read accounts of its tremendous size and its unexampled completeness and luxury, had felt it a matter of the greatest satisfaction that such a comfortable, and above all, such a safe boat had been designed and built, the unsinkable lifeboat, and then in a moment to hear that it had gone to the bottom as if it had been the various tramp steamer of a few hundred tons, and with it, fifteen hundred passengers, some of them known the world over. The improbability of such a thing ever happening was what staggered humanity. If its history had to be written in a single paragraph, it would be somewhat as follows. The RMS Titanic was built by Harland and Wolfe at their well-known shipbuilding works at Queen's Island, Belfast, side-by-side side with their sister ship, the Olympic. The twin vessels marked such an increase in size that specially laid-out joiner and boiler shops were prepared to aid in their construction, and the space usually taken up by three building slips was given up to them. The keel of the Titanic was laid on March 31, 1909, and she was launched on May 31, 1911. She passed her trials before the Board of Trade officials on March 31, 1912, at Belfast, arrived at Southampton on April 4th, and sailed the following Wednesday, April 10th, with 2,208 passengers and crew on her maiden voyage to New York. She called at Cherbourg the same day, Queensdown Thursday, and left for New York in the afternoon, expecting to arrive the following Wednesday morning. But the voyage was never completed. She collided with an iceberg on Sunday at 11.45 p.m. in latitude 41, 46 north, and longitude 50, 14 west, and sank two hours and a half later. 815 of her passengers and 688 of her crew were drowned, and 705 rescued by the Carpathia. Such is the record of the Titanic, the largest ship the world had ever seen. She was three inches longer than the Olympic, and 1,000 tons more in gross tonnage, and her end was the greatest maritime disaster known. The whole civilized world was stirred to its depths 
when the full extent of loss of life was learned, and it has not yet recovered from the shock. And that is without a doubt a good thing. It should not recover from it until the possibility of such a disaster occurring again has been utterly removed from human society, whether by separate legislation in different countries or by international agreement. No living person should seek to dwell in thought for one moment on such a disaster except in the endeavor to glean from it knowledge that will be of profit to the whole world in the future. When such knowledge is practically applied in the construction, equipment, and navigation of passenger steamers, and not until then, will be the time to cease to think of the titanic disaster and of the hundreds of men and women so needlessly sacrificed. When arranging a tour around the United States, I had decided to cross in the Titanic for several reasons. One, that it was rather a novelty to be on board the largest ship yet launched, and another that friends who had crossed in the Olympic described her as a most comfortable boat in a seaway, and it was reported that the Titanic had been still further improved in this respect by having a thousand tons more built into steadier. I went on board at Southampton at 10 a.m. Wednesday, April 10th, after staying the night in the town. It is pathetic to recall that as I sat that morning in the breakfast room of a hotel, from the windows of which could be seen the four huge funnels of the Titanic towering over the roofs of the various shipping offices opposite, and the procession of stokers and stewards wending their way to the ship. There sat behind me three of the Titanic's passengers discussing the coming voyage, and estimating, among other things, the probabilities of an accident at sea to the ship. As I rose from breakfast, I glanced at the group, and recognized them later on board, but they were not among the number who answered to the roll call on the Carpathia on the following Monday morning. Between the time of going on board and sailing, I inspected, in the company of two friends who had come from Exeter to see me off, the various decks, dining saloons, and libraries, and so extensive were they that it is no exaggeration to say that it was quite easy to lose one's way on such a ship. We wandered casually into the gymnasium on the boat deck, and were engaged in bicycle exercise when the instructor came in with two photographers and insisted on our remaining there while his friends, at least that's what we thought at the time, made a record for him of his apparatus in use. It was only later that we discovered that they were the photographers of one of the illustrated London papers. More passengers came in, and the instructor ran here and there, looking the very picture of robust, rosy-cheeked health and fitness in his white flannels, placing one passenger on the electric horse, another on the camel, while the laughing group of onlookers watched the inexperienced riders vigorously shaken up and down as he controlled the little motor which made the machines imitate so realistically horses and camels. It is related that on the night of the disaster, right up to the time of the Titanic sinking, while the band grouped outside the gymnasium doors played with such supreme courage in the face of the water which rose foot by foot before their eyes, the instructor was on duty inside with passengers on the bicycles and the rowing machines, still assisting and encouraging to the last. Along with the bandsman, it is fitting that his name, which I do not think has yet been put on record, is Macaulay, should have a place in the honorable list of those who did their duty faithfully to the ship and the line they served. Chapter 2. From Southampton to the Night of the Collision Soon after noon the whistles blew for friends to go ashore, the gangways were withdrawn, and the Titanic moved slowly down the dock 
to the accompaniment of last messages and shouted farewells of those on the quay. There was no cheering or hooting of steamers' whistles from the fleet of ships that lined the dock, as might seem probable on occasion of the largest vessel in the world putting to sea on her maiden voyage. The whole scene was quiet and rather ordinary, with little of the picturesque and interesting ceremonial which imagination paints as usual in such circumstances. But if this was lacking, two unexpected dramatic incidents supplied a thrill of excitement and interest to the departure from the dock. The first of these occurred just before the last gangway was withdrawn. A knot of stokers ran along the quay with their kits slung over their shoulders in bundles and made for the gangway with the evident intention of joining the ship. But a petty officer guarding the shore end of the gangway firmly refused to allow them on board. They argued, gesticulated, apparently attempting to explain the reasons why they were late, but he remained obdurate and waved them back with a determined hand. The gangway was dragged back amidst their protests, putting a summary ending to their determined efforts to join the Titanic. Those stokers must be thankful men today that some circumstance, whether their own lack of punctuality or some unforeseen delay over which they had no control, prevented their being in time to run up that last gangway. They will have told, and will no doubt tell for years, the story of how their lives were probably saved by being too late to join the Titanic. And let me interrupt for just a moment. In just a few days, we'll be airing mysteries and myths surrounding the Titanic. And right now in Chapter 2, author Beasley is going to describe something that he saw that he felt was a bad omen, a bad way to start a cruise. He continues, The second incident occurred soon afterwards, and while it has no doubt been thoroughly described at the time by those on shore, perhaps a view of the occurrence from the deck of the Titanic will not be without interest. As the Titanic moved majestically down the dock, the crowd of friends keeping pace with us along the quay, we came together level with the steamer New York, lying moored to the side of the dock along with the Oceanic, the crowd waving goodbyes to those on board as well as they could for the intervening bulk of the two ships. But as the bows of our ship came about level with those of the New York, there came a series of reports like those of a revolver, and on the quay side of the New York, snaky coils of thick rope flung themselves high in the air and fell backwards among the crowd, which retreated in alarm to escape the flying ropes. We hoped that no one was struck by the ropes, but a sailor next to me was certain he saw a woman carried away to receive attention. And then, to our amazement, the New York crept towards us, slowly and stealthily, as if drawn by some invisible force which she was powerless to withstand. It reminded me instantly of an experiment I had shown many times in my work as a physics teacher to a form of boys learning the elements of physics in a laboratory in which a small magnet is made to float on a cork in a bowl of water and small steel objects placed on neighboring pieces of cork are drawn up to the floating magnet by magnetic force. It reminded me, too, of seeing in my little boy's bath how a large celluloid floating duck would draw towards itself by what is called capillary attraction. Smaller ducks, frogs, beetles, and other animal folk, until the menagerie floated about as a unit, oblivious of their natural antipathies and reminding us of the happy families one sees in cages on the seashore. On the New York there was a shouting of orders, sailors running to and fro, paying out ropes and putting maps over the side where it seemed likely we should collide. The tug, before cast off from the bows of the Titanic, 
came up around our stern and passed to the quay side of the New York stern, made fast to her, and started to haul her back with all the force her engines were capable of. But it did not seem that the tug made much impression on the New York. Apart from the serious nature of the accident, it made an irresistibly comic picture to see the huge vessel drifting down the dock with a snorting tug at its heels, for all the world like a small boy dragging a diminutive puppy down the road with its teeth locked on a piece of rope, its feet splayed out, its head and body shaking from side to side in the effort to get every ounce of its weight used to the best advantage. At first, all appearance showed that the sterns of the two vessels would collide, but from the stern bridge of the Titanic, an officer directing operations stopped us dead. The suction seized, and the New York, with her tug trailing behind, moved obliquely down the dock, her stern gliding along the side of the Titanic some few yards away. It gave an extraordinary impression of the absolute helplessness of a big liner in the absence of any motive power to guide her. But all excitement was not yet over. The New York turned her bows inward towards the quay, her stern swinging just clear of and passing in front of our bows by about six feet, and moved slowly head-on for the Teutonic, lying moored to the side. Mats were quickly got out and so deadened the force of the collision, which from where we were seemed to be too slight to cause any damage. Another tug came up and took hold of the New York by the bows, and between the two of them they dragged her round the corner of the quay, which just here came to an end on the side of the river. We now moved slowly ahead and passed the Teutonic at a creeping pace, but notwithstanding this, the latter strained at her rope so much that she heeled over several degrees in her efforts to follow the Titanic. The crowd was shouted back. A group of gold-braided officials, probably the harbor master and his staff, standing on the seaside of the moored ropes, jumped back over them as they drew up taut to a rigid line and urged the crowd back still further. But we were just clear, and as we slowly turned the corner into the river, I saw the Teutonic swing slowly back into her normal station, relieving the tension alike of the ropes and of the minds of all who witnessed that incident. Sailors are proverbially superstitious. Far too many people are prone to follow their lead, or indeed, the lead of anyone who asserts a statement with an air of conviction and the opportunity of constant repetition. The sense of mystery that shrouds a prophetic utterance particularly if it be an ominous one. For so constituted apparently is the human mind that it will receive the impress of an evil prophecy far more readily than it will that of a beneficent one, possibly through subservient fear to the thing it dreads, possibly through the degraded, morbid attraction which the sense of evil has for the innate evil in the human mind. Leads many people to pay a certain respect to superstitious theories, not that they wholly believe in them, or would wish their dearest friends to know they ever gave them a second thought. But the feeling that other people do so, and the half-conviction that there might be something in that after all, sways them into tacit obedience to the most absurd theories. I wish in a later chapter to discuss the subject of superstition in its reference to our life on board the Titanic, but will anticipate events here a little by relating a second so-called bad omen which was hatched at Queenstown. As one of the tenders containing passengers and mails neared the Titanic, some of those on board gazed up at the liner towering above them and saw a stoker's head 
black from his work in the stoke hole below, peering out at them from the top of one of those enormous funnels, a dummy one for ventilation this one happened to be, that rose many feet above the highest deck. He had climbed up inside for a joke, but to some of those who saw him there, the sight was seed for the growth of an omen, which bore fruit in an unknown dread of dangers to come. An American lady, may she forgive me if she reads these lines, has related to me with the deepest conviction and earnestness of manner that she saw the man and attributes the sinking of the Titanic largely to that. Errant foolishness, you might say. Yes, indeed. But not to those who believe in it, and it is well not to have such prophetic thoughts of danger passed round among passengers and crew. It would seem to have an unhealthy influence. We dropped down Spithead, past the shores of the Isle of Wight, looking superbly beautiful in new spring foliage, exchanged salutes with a White Star tug lying to in wait for one of their liners inward bound, and saw in the distance several warships with attendant black destroyers guarding the entrance from the sea. In the calmest weather, we made Cherbourg just as it grew dusk, and left again about 8.30, after taking on board passengers and mails. We reached Queenstown about 12 noon on Thursday, after a most enjoyable passage across the channel, although the wind was almost too cold to allow of sitting out on deck on Thursday morning. The coast of Ireland looked very beautiful as we approached Queenstown Harbor, the brilliant morning sun showing up the green hillsides and picking out groups of dwellings dotted here and there above the rugged gray cliffs that fringed the coast. We took on board our pilot, ran slowly towards the harbor with the sounding line dropping all the time, and came to a stop well out to sea, with our screws churning up the bottom and turning the sea all brown with sand from below. It had seemed to me that the ship stopped rather suddenly, and in my ignorance of the depth of the harbor entrance, that perhaps the sounding line had revealed a smaller depth than was thought safe for the great size of the Titanic. This seemed to be confirmed by the sight of sand churned up from the bottom, but this is mere supposition. Passengers and mails were put on board from two tenders, and nothing could have given us a better idea of the enormous length and bulk of the Titanic than to stand as far astern as possible and look over the side from the top deck, forwards and downwards to where the tenders rolled at her bows, the merest cockle shells beside the majestic vessel that rose deck after deck above them. Truly she was a magnificent boat, there was something so graceful in her movement as she rode up and down on the slight swell in the harbor, a slow, stately dip and recover, only noticeable by watching her bows in comparison with some landmark on the coast in the near distance. The two little tenders tossing up and down like corks beside her illustrated vividly the advance made in comfort of motion from the time of the small steamer. Presently the work of transfer was ended, the tenders cast off, and at 1.30 p.m., with the screws churning up the sea bottom again, the Titanic turned slowly through a quarter circle until her nose pointed down along the Irish coast and then steamed rapidly away from Queenstown, the little house on the left of the town gleaming white on the hillside for many miles astern. In our wake soared and screamed hundreds of gulls, which had quarreled and fought over the remnants of lunch pouring out of the waste pipes as we lay to in the harbor entrance and now they followed us in the expectation of further spoils. I watched them for a long time, and was astonished at the ease 
with which they soared and kept up with the ship with hardly a motion of their wings. Picking up a particular gull, I could keep him under observation for minutes at a time and see no motion of his wings downwards or upwards to aid his flight. He would tilt all of a piece to one side or another as the gusts of wind caught him. Rigidly unbendable, as an aeroplane tilts sideways in a puff of wind. And yet, with graceful ease, he kept pace with the Titanic, forging through the water at twenty knots. As the wind met him, he would rise upwards and obliquely forwards and come down slantingly again, his wings curved in a beautiful arch and his tail feathers outspread as a fan. It was plain that he possessed of a secret we are only just beginning to learn, that of utilizing air currents as escalators up and down, which he can glide at will with the expenditure of the minimum amount of energy, or of using them as a ship does when it sails within one or two points of a headwind. Aviators, of course, are imitating the gull, and soon, perhaps, we may see an aeroplane or a glider dipping gracefully up and down in the face of an opposing wind, and all the time forging ahead across the Atlantic Ocean. All afternoon we steamed along the coast of Ireland, with gray cliffs guarding the shores, and hills rising behind, gaunt and barren. As dusk fell, the coast rounded away from us to the northwest, and the last we saw of Europe was the Irish mountains dim and faint in the dropping darkness. With the thought that we had seen the last of land until we set foot on the shores of America, I retired to the library to write letters, little knowing that many things would happen to us all, many experiences, sudden, vivid, and impressive to be encountered, many perils to be faced, many good and true people for whom we should have to mourn before we saw land again. Coming now to Sunday, the day on which the Titanic struck the iceberg, it will be interesting, perhaps, to give the day's events in some detail, to appreciate the general attitude of the passengers to their surroundings just before the collision. Service was held in the saloon by the purser in the morning, and going on deck after lunch, we found such a change in temperature that not many cared to remain to face the bitter wind, an artificial wind created mainly, if not entirely, by the ship's rapid motion through the chilly atmosphere. I should judge there was no wind blowing at the time, for I had noticed about the same force of wind approaching Queenstown, to find that it died away as soon as we stopped, only to rise again as we steamed away from the harbor. Returning to the library, I stopped for a moment to read again the day's run and observe our position on the chart. The Reverend Mr. Carter, a clergyman of the Church of England, was similarly engaged and we renewed a conversation we had enjoyed for some days. It had commenced with a discussion of the relative merits of his university, Oxford, with mine, Cambridge, as worldwide educational agencies, the opportunities at each for the formation of character apart from mere education as such, and had led on to the lack of sufficiently qualified men to take up the work of the Church of England. The library was crowded that afternoon, owing to the cold on deck, but through the windows we could see the clear sky with brilliant sunlight that seemed to augur a fine night and a clear day tomorrow, and the prospect of landing in two days, with calm weather all the way to New York, was a matter of general satisfaction among us all. I can look back and see every detail of the library that afternoon, the beautifully furnished room with lounges, armchairs, and small writing or card tables scattered about, writing bureaus round the walls of the hole, 
finished in mahogany, relieved with white fluted wooden columns that supported the deck above. Through the windows there is the covered corridor, reserved by general consent as the children's playground. And there were playing two Navatril children with their father, devoted to them, never absent from them. Who would have thought of the dramatic history of the happy group at play in the corridor that afternoon? The abduction of the children in Nice, the assumed name of the father, the separation of father and children within a few hours, his death, and their subsequent union with their mother after a period of doubt as to their parentage. How many more similar secrets the Titanic revealed in the privacy of family life, or carried down with her untold, we shall never know. In the same corridor is a man and his wife with two children, and one of them he is generally carrying. They are all young and happy. He is dressed always in a gray knickerbocker suit, with a camera slung over his shoulder. I have not seen any of them since that afternoon. Close beside me, so near that I cannot avoid hearing scraps of their conversation, are two American ladies, both dressed in white, young, probably friends only. One has been to India and is returning by way of England. The other is a schoolteacher in America, a graceful girl with a distinguished air heightened by a pair of pince-nez eyeglasses. Engaged in conversation with them is a gentleman whom I subsequently identified from a photograph as a well-known resident of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Genial, polished, and with a courtly air towards the two ladies, whom he has known but a few hours. From time to time, as they talk, a child acquaintance breaks in on their conversation and insists on their taking notice of a large doll clasped in her arms. I have seen none of this group since then. In the opposite corner are the young American kinematograph photographer and his young wife, evidently French, very fond of playing patience, which she is doing now while he sits back in his chair watching the game and interposing from time to time with suggestions. I did not see them again. In the middle of the room are two Catholic priests, one quietly reading, either English or Irish, and probably the latter, to a friend in German, and evidently explaining some verse in the open Bible before him. Near them a young fire engineer on his way to Mexico, and of the same religion as the rest of the group. None of them were saved. It may be noted here that the percentage of men saved in the second class is the lowest of any other division, only 8%. Many other faces recur to thought, but it is impossible to describe them all in the space of a short book. Of all those in the library that Sunday afternoon, I can remember only two or three persons who found their way to the Carpathia. Looking over this room with his back to the library shelves is the library steward, thin, stooping, sad-faced, and generally with nothing to do but serve out books. But this afternoon he's busier than I've ever seen him, serving out baggage declaration forms for passengers to fill in. Mine is before me as I write. Form for non-residents in the United States. Steamship Titanic. No. 3144D, etc. I had filled it in that afternoon and slipped it in my pocketbook instead of returning it to the steward. Before me, too, is a small cardboard square. White Star Line, RMS Titanic, 208. This label must be given up when the article is returned. The property will be deposited in the purser's safe. The company will not be liable to passengers for the loss of money, jewels, or ornaments, by theft or otherwise, not so deposited. 
The property deposited in my case was money, placed in an envelope, sealed, with my name written across the flap, and handed to the purser. The label is my receipt. Along with other similar envelopes, it may still be intact in the safe at the bottom of the sea, but in all probability it is not, as will be seen presently. After dinner, Mr. Carter invited all who wished to the saloon, and with the assistance at the piano of a gentleman who sat at the purser's table opposite me, a young Scotch engineer going out to join his brother fruit farming at the foot of the Rockies, he started some hundred passengers singing hymns. They were asked to choose whichever hymn they wished, and with so many to choose, it was impossible for him to do more than have the greatest favorite sung. As he announced each hymn, it was evident that he was thoroughly versed in their history. No hymn was sung but that he gave a short sketch of its author, and in some cases a description of the circumstances in which it was composed. I think all were impressed with his knowledge of hymns, and with his eagerness to tell us all he knew of them. It was curious to see how many chose hymns dealing with dangers at sea. I noticed the hushed tone with which all sang the hymn, For Those in Peril on the Sea. The singing must have gone on until after ten o'clock, when, seeing the steward standing about waiting to serve biscuits and coffee before going off duty, Mr. Carter brought the evening to a close by a few words of thanks to the purser for the use of the saloon, a short sketch of the happiness and safety of the voyage hitherto, the great confidence all felt on board this great liner with her steadiness and her size, and the happy outlook of landing in a few hours in New York at the close of a delightful voyage. And all the time he spoke, a few miles ahead of us lay that peril on the sea that was to sink this same great liner with many of those on board who listened with gratitude to his simple, heartfelt words. So much for the frailty of human hopes and for the confidence reposed in material human designs. Think of the shame of it, that a mass of ice of no use to anyone or anything should have the power to fatally injure the beautiful Titanic that an insensible block should be able to threaten, even in the smallest degree, the lives of many good men and women who think and plan and hope and love, and not only to threaten, but to end their lives. It is unbearable. Are we never to educate ourselves to foresee such dangers and to prevent them before they happen? All the evidence of history shows that laws unknown and unsuspected are being discovered day by day. As this knowledge accumulates for the use of man, is it not certain that the ability to see and destroy beforehand the threat of danger will be one of the privileges the whole world will utilize? May that day come soon. Until it does, no precaution too rigorous can be taken. No safety appliance, however costly, must be omitted from a ship's equipment. After the meeting had broken up, I talked with the Carters over a cup of coffee, said good night to them, and retired to my cabin at about quarter to eleven. They were good people, and this world is much poorer by their loss. It may be a matter of pleasure to some people to know that their friends were perhaps among that gathering of people in the saloon, and that at the last the sound of the hymns still echoed in their ears as they stood on the deck so quietly and courageously. Who can tell how much it had to do with the demeanor of some of them and the example this would set to others? Coming soon, Chapter 3, The Collision and Embarkation in Lifeboats. 
Thank you very much for listening, and please do send us a review at 1001 Heroes. We would appreciate that very much. And if you haven't subscribed to our show, please do. The 1001 Stories Network has 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Radio Days, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We thank you very much for being with us. Stay tuned for Chapter 3, coming soon.